On this episode of the BYO Nano Podcast, we're talking about craft malt with maltsters and nano brewers who are committed to local agriculture and big flavor. This is John Hall, and welcome to episode 31. We focused on hops lately, so it's time for malt to take the spotlight. And I'm really excited to have a panel of guests on the show, two craft maltsters and two nano brewers, to talk about what's new with grain, educational efforts, climate change, and plans for the future. We'll get into the conversation in just a moment. But first, a word of thanks to this show's sponsors, and we hope you'll give them a closer look. Hey, Nano Brewers, Fermentus, the obvious choice for beverage fermentation, is now offering dry ale and lager yeasts in flexible 100-gram pouches. Try their Safe Ale WBO6 yeast in the convenient 100-gram pouch, which is the perfect solution for wheat-based beers. To learn more about how Fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation and for the latest on their exciting new product releases, visit Fermentus.com. This episode is also sponsored by Blickman Pro Brewing. With superior engineering and unrivaled service, Blickman Pro Brewing equipment is the smart choice for your bottom line. You won't find a better match of price, performance, and quality. Hit the ground running with equipment you can count on and support you can trust so you can focus on what matters, ROI. Visit BlickmanPro.com to learn more. And get access to hundreds of hours of on-demand videos covering small craft brewery strategies with BYO's new Nano Plus membership. Learn from craft beer experts watching replays of past NanoCon seminars, plus a complete library of in-depth workshops. You'll also have full online access to all of BYO's digital content and an annual print magazine subscription. Check out byo.com slash nanoplus to learn more details. As the craft brewing industry grows, so do the number of small farms that support the brewing industry through ingredients. This month, we're focused on malt, specifically innovation and flavor, the relationship with brewers and growers and consumers, and what's on the horizon for this important category of brewing. My panel of guests include Hilary Barl. She is the manager of Rabbit Hill Farms in New Jersey, Brendan Carroll, who's the owner and maltster at CNC Malting in Pennsylvania, and on the brewing side, Adam Jumkoza of Odd Bird Brewing in New Jersey and Sam Fee of Monday's Brewing in Pennsylvania. They each join me from their respective breweries or farms. Hillary, in a separate conversation with you this week on unrelated topics, we were talking about this podcast and you mentioned that you and Brendan uh, had met previously uh, in Maltster School. Is that? Yes. So I, I'm... <laughs> Go ahead. What, what I mean, one that's that that's a pretty cool thing uh, that there's a monster school. But uh, two, what drew you to the idea of small malt, malt, artisanal malts, especially when it came to the beer space? Uh, yeah. So I think much. I think in the same way that Brendan was drawn to malting and he can correct me if I'm wrong, but we both kind of came at it from the idea of potentially opening a brewery. So our, our initial idea was that we might want to put a small brewery on our, on our farm um, and completely vertical and vertically integrate that where we were growing our own grains and hopefully as many inputs as possible for all of our beer. 
um, and then uh, brewing it here at the farm as well. And so we set about getting ready to do that, thinking about what we knew how to do or, and what we needed to learn how to do. Um, and so we started learning how to grow really high quality barley, um, investigating if we would be capable of malting those grains on the farm ourselves and then how we needed to go about that. Um, and then we, we kind of just fell down the rabbit hole of malting and got so interested in that um, and, and found that we could go deeper and deeper on that and that there were customers who were interested in local malt. And so we've never gotten to the brewery stage outside of some home brew that we make at the malt house occasionally. Um, but uh, we're really excited that that's how we kind of found our way into malting. Brennan, what about you? Yeah, Hillary pretty much nailed it. I was thinking of getting into brewing as well. Uh, I had worked professionally oil and gas and uh, left that to, um, I guess, be more with my family and raising two little kids. And so I went from uh, having about 200 people report to me to two that don't listen at all. And I think <laughs> <laughs> I need to do something professional again. And I thought about uh, starting a brewery, I have most of the equipment and uh, shopping for a mill on home brewer and came across some malting equipment and kind of like Hillary, I thought, aha, that'd be cool. We could uh, um, have our own malting here, give us a little more control in the process, give uh, brewers a, a reason to come find us, see us, or excuse me, give uh, beer patrons a reason to come to our brewery. And um, so then in the meantime, I searched for some Pennsylvania malt and that, that uh, period about six years ago or so there wasn't any available and I thought well my goodness why don't I just malt and then I could visit all the brewers and instead of closing down the bar at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock I could go home and not deal with drunk people but you have to go shovel the grain at 10 o'clock at night so you still don't go home yeah yeah there's still a lot of work into it um Sam when you when you opened you were really thinking about wanting to have local malt featured in your beers. And I know that there's, you know, brewers will, will, will talk about the importance of local and they will um, embrace it a, a, as best that they can. But how do you find the reception is for your beers when you can talk about you know, using Brendan's malt? I think it makes a, a real substantial difference, especially for that conversation that's taking place in the tap room over the bar. You know, um, a lot of our customers really are looking for a local product. That's why they're coming into a small neighborhood brewery in the first place. And um, it just it tells a very compelling story when you can explain, especially depending on the beer style, you can explain that virtually everything, maybe the hops didn't come from the local area. Um, so that's, that's really pretty cool. I mean, I make a series of beers that are all with local grains. So by the time you're thinking about it, most of those ingredients come within 45 minutes of the brewery. So uh, people have really enjoyed that story. It makes them connect with the beer, I think, uh, in a way that's more than just from a sensory perspective. Adam, have you had a similar experience with the beers that you've had with Hillary's Malt on tap? Yeah, um, honestly, uh, when we started here, we, we really were doing a lot of um, British and uh, German malts. And then uh, one, uh, 
a couple other breweries that I picked up beer from, specifically uh, Tonewood and Heavy Reel. I was like noticing on their their Those label, are two other Jersey breweries. Yeah. Two other Jersey breweries said, you know, brewed with Rabbit Hill malt. So we reached out to Hillary, and when we brought it in, um, it was we on all of our menus we have exactly what grain exactly what hops like we basically put our recipes on our menu and when people are looking at it like wait there's malt in new jersey and it's, it starts a really cool conversation especially because uh jersey has such a reputation for being more of a industrial state when there's really i mean it is the garden malt. state come on exactly exactly uh and it's just really adds a neat little aspect to it of, you know, a little bit of Jersey pride in, in the beer and their malt itself is fantastic. So Did, that helped. Does, I mean, it, it, translates, it translates into, into the taste, but the, when are you finding now that people are coming in and asking, Oh, what's new from, rabbit hill malt or you know what's new with local grain is it, it have, have either of you two brewers experienced that in sort of the same way that somebody might sit down and say oh but i really like mosaic hops or i really i'm into azaka these days um are, yeah. are the consumers catching up yet yeah actually um because the whole uh, honestly our first uh beer that we did with uh 100 rabbit hill malt was because we're part of um, the Hunter and County Beer Trail, so it's all the different breweries in the in the one county. Um, and that's the well, western part of the state. For western, those yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The very uh, basically Pennsylvania is our. I could see Pennsylvania from my window right now. That's yeah, that's. Um, so we were doing a beer that was uh, everybody was doing a collaboration, but it was uh, using your own riff on whatever. Uh, on a specific recipe. So we decided since it was a New Jersey beer trail, we should use New Jersey ingredients. So we used, uh, we used Rabbit Hill after I tried the other beers from it. And uh, people really were noticing how much they, it was a strong pale ale basically. And people were noticing they really liked the body of it. So when we had another IPA on afterwards, it's starting, people are starting to like realize that that's a thing, which is really, I think it's really cool. Yeah. So to the maltsters, and I'll just sort of make this a jump ball right now. Um, what are you finding is in demand from the brewers you're working with today? What 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 are they looking for, and what are you able to grow and exciting excited to grow? Well, ladies first, or should I jump in? Go, go ahead. I'd say at this particular moment, it's Pilsner malt. Um, but it, it shifts kind of with the seasons. So it, um, it and it um, for unique malts, it'll generally follow whatever new article comes out. Um, so if someone writes an article about oak smoked wheat, then that's uh, hot for a little bit, and then typically that'll die down. So it it goes in trends, but the. Uh, the bread and butter and most consistent, most in demand malts are going to be the base malts. So at the moment, Pilsner in general, I'd say a regular brewer's pale malt is uh, the most sought after. Does yeah, that track I, with you? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I, for Since we felt comfortable with our Pilsner, which was pretty soon after we started making malts, um, we have Pilsner has been our number one, uh, just a, a basic two row Pilsner. We make everything, 
um, that we're sending out from grains that we grow on our own farm. So um, that's a two-row winter variety of barley that came from uh, a seed company that was sourcing seed out of uh, Germany. We've been really excited by some of the winter barley varieties that are European descent. Uh, those seem to work really well in our region. They stay pretty low protein um, and so make a really nice, uh, easy to work with Pilsner and a pretty flavorful Pilsner. So our Pilsner has always been our, our most popular malt. Um, but I would say this is the first year that I'm remembering that I need to be making Munich and Vienna styles right now for all of the people that are going to order them for their Oktoberfest yeah. uh, beer making. And uh, I was really excited to remember that I needed to do that now <laughs> and actually have the time to start production on those things now instead of just barely keeping up on uh, Pilsner production. It, it's interesting because that when you think about the you know the brewers building out their schedules, they're so dependent on you guys being just slightly ahead of them. I mean, yes. aside from Oktoberfest that I, you know, and, and, and I've been talking to folks over the last couple of weeks who have already started matching in some of, uh, some of theirs. Um, uh, are there other, other, other malts, are there other products that you're now sort of thinking about further in advance? Like you've been doing this, the, the two of you have been doing this long enough where you can see the seasonality of beers and what might be in demand and what might not. Yeah, we usually hit a little bump in rye malt in the fall as well. And then um, in the late spring, early summer, a ton of wheat malt um, going into those like spring, summer wheat beers or weeded, uh, you know, whatever. So uh, a lot of uh, a lot of wheat malt in the spring as well. Mm -hmm. And as you get towards the fall, I'd say some, uh, there's interest in darker malts, whether they're chocolate or um, whatever it might be for porters and uh, darker beers. Yeah. Brendan, are you doing those in-house as well? Yeah, we could, uh, I haven't, we've been doing chocolate on a very small scale. Um, our, we're going to try it uh, probably tomorrow to do a larger scale chocolate just to see how it goes. Um, Cause I, I kind of feel um, the same relief that Hillary is that uh, we could finally get ahead. We, we knocked out our rye before it started getting hot. And, um, you know, seasonally it kind of mentioned that uh, we're a season ahead of the brewers. And if you kind of look at that right now, it's getting hot. So the Munich malt, if it, Terminates a little warmer, clumps up a little. That's acceptable, actually desirable in style. So when you look at uh, how the weather's treating us, that kind of gives you some insight as to um, why Oktoberfest is released in October. By the time we malt it, it sits a few weeks, and a brewer brews it, sits a few months, and what do you know? You're September, October. Um, but uh, I guess to answer your question, we're starting to roast now. We're a little caught up on our bases, so that's a good place to be. Hey, Sam and Adam, um, it, it was brought up that, you know, if there's an article written or there's something that sort of gets hot for a minute, um, you know, there, there's brewer demand for it. Um, but you two being the creative types that you are, there's one thing about following trends or what everybody else is, or there's, there's other things about um, making the beers your own and, and, and thinking about um, what you want to put out there to people. Um, 
what have you ha- what have you seen as the real benefits to having a relationship with a maltster that's local to you, especially when it comes to brewer whims? Oh, I think there's a, there are a number of them. I'm sorry for jumping in, Adam. I, I know he's going to help you too. Now he's you were, you were, you were just me elbowing up. him out of the way. I was expecting the guy from Jersey to start throwing punches, but yeah, that's <laughs> no, the, the thing that has been great. And um, so we're a five barrel system, but we're basically a giant. Uh, my, my equipment is basically a giant brew in a basket system. Um, so the size of the crush of the grain is really important as far as my hitting my efficiency um, and getting enough extract out of the grains that I put in. So Brendan has always been super helpful. I've been up to the farm and like, you know, we could work together to find the right size crush that works for my system. Um, so that's huge. I think that's the kind of thing that you could do when you have a relationship with a maltster. Whereas if you're just calling a big company and they're, delivering a pallet of grain to you, it's not going to be quite, you're not going to have that kind of personal relationship. Um, And I also think Brendan's been to the brewery and tasted the beers that I've made with his, with his malts. Um, And that's also, I I think, something that adds to the overall experience. You know, it's, it's that we're working together to make that product. Like he might not have been there on brew day, but his malts made that beer. Yeah, definitely having the the person who's making the malt actually delivering the malt and showing up at your brew house is, is pretty cool too. You know, I mean, you're not gonna get that from most ingredients in, in brewing if you're not on the west coast and it tops or something like that. So yeah, that that's a really cool thing. Um, what you were saying about like uh, brewing brewing whims and trends, um, I mean, we're we're definitely following like the biggest trend right now in brewing and the most popular style of beer, which is Roush beer. Right. right John? Uh, so, uh, You're on the wrong show for that, but I really appreciate it. Yes. So um, we were actually, when Hillary was here dropping off our, um, our last batch of malts, which uh, included um, malted rye, which still had the husk, not rye, sorry, she was saying rye, uh, malted spelt, which still had the husk on it, which I don't think you can even, purchase from any of the large uh, maltster, um, which was fantastic in a farmhouse saison we made, but either way, uh, we were discussing the different types of uh, smoked malts that that she was making on their farm themselves. So they we can pick which type of wood the, the malt is smoked with. And, you know, no, uh, no kidding us or not. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding aside that we actually do like making Roush beers here. I think it'd be cool to do stuff that's specifically unique to that malt um, and and what the maltster can do with it. Uh, be able to try a different ones in a series even. Which I don't think I could do anyplace else. Yeah, I it is interesting and and being an unabashed fan of, of, of Roush beers, as as I, I hope a lot of the listeners know. Um, I've really enjoyed that small maltsters, local maltsters have been experimenting with different woods or different smoking agents um, to impart different flavors. And, um, you know, I was just traveling down in, in, in Nashville um, recently, a couple months ago, and uh, the brewer there had some, some 
grain that was dropped off that had been smoked over lavender, which was lovely. Uh, and there's some other, uh, some other fun things as well that escaped me at the moment. Um, but to, to Hillary and Brennan, when, when, when you, when you're thinking about Rauk malt, and again, let's be honest here, Rauk beer is not setting the world ablaze, uh, as much as we may like. Um, but there's an, is there an added level of creativity to finding things to smoke with? We try to stick with things that you wouldn't be able to find commercially or that you are, that are native to our area. So the things that we're smoking over are typically woods that we can find either on our own farm or on adjacent farms. So we, we have some orchards around us. So we will smoke over applewood um, or peachwood. Um, we do also on the farm have um, and have smoked with um, crab apple, uh, mulberry. We have oak, so we've done that as well. We have beechwood here if we wanted to go down that road, but we don't typically because it's so commonly available. Um, we're always looking for what we can provide that will be something different or give someone a different take on a flavor that they may have encountered before. So uh, like to take the mulberry smoked um, malts, for example, I, I think we've converted a, a couple of brewers who are like not so into the Ralph beer um, by throwing a, a bag on an, on an order and saying like, just make something with it, like give it a try. And then I ended up selling like a lot of mulberry smoked Pilsner over the following months because brewers who were out experiencing beer at other people's breweries tried something and they were like, what is that? It's, it's a different smoke than normal. Um, and, and we're then intrigued by that flavor um, and, and sought it out. Well, I'm inspired to go chop down my mulberry tree now. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, we kind of follow the same philosophy, dance with Hubrungia, and um, we have a lot of fruit trees as well. Applewood's been my favorite to smoke with, and um, we like to pretend that Johnny Appleseed planted this apple tree because uh, we have an old, old orchard that geographically and time-wise could have possibly have been. I have no way to prove or disprove that, but we'll run with the story. And <laughs> um, the uh, I guess the I mean, one- when you If you ever chop that one down, that becomes the ultimate ticker beer. <laughs> yeah, <there you> go. <laughs> um, I guess the one exception is peat. So from uh, the, on the distilling side, there's a lot of interest in peat in particular. And I think for perhaps a smoked porter in the fall, peat might be a nice way to go. So we've uh, brought some peat back from a recent trip we did to Scotland. And um, it's actually a, a quite convenient souvenir. You just slap a luggage ticket on the uh, bag and off it goes. Um, uh, smoking is a lot of fun and you could really vary the intensity of the smoke by the amount of time you let the uh, wet malt sit in smoke saturation. If you uh, completely cure it over smoke or take it out and dry it down afterwards, it's a um, fun malt to make, but a dangerous one as you have to make sure you don't do anything to cross-contaminate any of your non-smoked malts. Yeah. Otherwise you end up with a, a lot of beer to drink. We'll have more in a moment, but first, a word of thanks to this episode's sponsors. 
Hey, Nano Brewers, Fermentus, the obvious choice for beverage fermentation, is now offering dry ale and lager yeasts in flexible 100 gram pouches. Try their Safe Ale WBO6 yeast in the convenient 100 gram pouch, which is the perfect solution for wheat based beers. To learn more about how Fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation and for the latest on their exciting new product releases, visit fermentus.com. This episode is also sponsored by Blickman Pro Brewing. With superior engineering and unrivaled service, Blickman Pro Brewing equipment is the smart choice for your bottom line. You won't find a better match of price, performance, and quality. Hit the ground running with equipment you can count on and support you can trust so you can focus on what matters, ROI. Visit BlickmanPro.com to learn more and get access to hundreds of hours of on-demand videos covering small craft brewery strategies with BYO's new Nano Plus membership. Learn from craft beer experts watching replays of past NanoCon seminars, plus a complete library of in-depth workshops. You'll also have full online access to all of BYO's digital content and an annual print magazine subscription. Check out byo.com slash nano plus to learn more details. Hillary, we've had a lot of conversations over the years. You've been on other shows. Uh, we, we've hung out in person and had beers. And um, I, I've been trying to learn the language of local malt because it, it sort of comes up where you, you just sparked this in my mind where you're saying, okay, if you're doing different Ralk malts, for example, um, people are saying, oh, I haven't had something like this before. And they're, they're, they're getting really into it. Um, when I'm drinking beers at a brewery that are made with local malts, I can usually tell that they're local malts um, just because they don't have that super refined taste. And, and I don't mean that as a slight to, to, to small maltsters, you know, cause I actually prefer it because it has more of a rustic quality to it. It has more of a uh, authentic quality to it a, a, a lot of the time. Um, but to Adam and Sam, if you're making a lager, if you're making an IPA, if you're making, you know, a, 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 a style of beer that people are usually familiar with, but you're doing it with local malts, is that part of the conversation as well? You know, are people saying, well, this is not, this is not an IPA or wow, this is a, the best IPA I've ever had. Or it, um, are you having those conversations? Not necessarily. Um... So we've made now a strong pale ale and a strong IPA, uh, both in the you know uh, 5.9 and 7.9 range with 100% um, of Rabbit Hills malts. And they came out, the, the body on it, the, the mouthfeel besides the hops is so clean and it is refined. Like, I mean, it, the, the Pilsner malt that we're using is comes out very, very refined, very clean, very bright. Um, and people were commenting that the, that the body of it is really nice. Most of our IPAs are using British malts, so that's going to have a little more of a uh, roasty biscuity note, I guess, best way to put it. Uh, but no, it's, it's, been, it's worked out fantastic for that. The, ones, the, the beers that have been noticeably more rustic were, were purposely rustic, and that's like the, the farmhouse saison we did with uh, the spelt malt and uh, Berliner Weiss, which was uh, with a large portion of their uh, their wheat malt, 
And you could tell that there is a difference between our IPAs that we're using uh, mass produced malt and then and Hillary's malt. Um, yeah, I, I would yeah. agree with what Adam's saying in terms of like the conversations over the bar, like people will notice the difference. Uh, I, I tend to use Brendan's malts almost exclusively in all the lagers that I make. And um, going back to what Adam said, there's just so much body in that, in those beers. Like I don't have to use anything else to get it. I mean, I just have to have a good process and make sure that everything's done correctly, make a really good lager and that malt's going to come through. And the flavor on it is, is really amazing. Customers notice the difference. They can, they can notice something that I've made um, in early days before Brendan and I were working together as much as we are now versus something that, you know, they drink today. John, to circle back to your question, yeah. we, ha we have been trying to get to a little bit more of an understanding of, of that tasting note of like, oh, it's more rustic or less refined in our previous conversations. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm wondering if it's just the styles that people are choosing to make with small, you know, with craft malt. And it, because I think often people go to craft malt for the styles that lean into rustic character or farmy character, because it's just an easy, it's an easy place for them to put it. And it's not every brewer that chooses to put craft malt straight into an IPA for the first time that they're working with you because they, they're thinking it may be wasted on that IPA. I'm just going to taste the hops or, um, you know, they're focused on some other component of, of that beer style, um, as opposed to the malt. So I, I, I've been thinking about this as like, is it a, a chicken and the egg thing that like people tend to use craft malt in styles that are less refined or less, uh, I don't know, or more rustic. Um, yeah, yeah, makes sense. Yeah. That yeah. being said, I, I've become addicted to Brendan's biscuit malt. I am actually adding it now into our kettle sours, which is not, you know, not the normal recipe, right? So instead of just using wheat and Pilsner, I tend to throw in some biscuit malt and depending on what we, what else is in that sour, like, especially if I put a little cinnamon in or something like that, people will swear that there's graham cracker in it. <laughs> and um, it's just the biscuit ball. Um, Brendan, you were going to jump in there, I think, on when we were talking about flavors and talking about. So, yeah, um, what we've noted sometimes, there's a, a lot of variables going into it. So Hillary talked about variety. Um, and now I, I assume Hillary, most of your barley, if not all your barley is coming from yourself. So you kind of have a good control on what variety it is. And all that we we've switched up our varieties, uh, off and on, depending on what seed we could get in different farms, you'll see different, uh, um, levels of brightness on the barley. So all of that could go into making different flavors in the malt. And, uh, so one of the flavors that comes off is uh, earthiness has been described as um, sometimes a little bit of a, a floral flavor and uh, if someone's really spending a lot of money on hops to make a super hazy IPA real um, juicy kind of 
that hazy IPA, they might not want that competing with their hops. So what we've seen is a demand for a very bland, very neutral malt. And uh, so I found playing around with the variety a little and uh, we're floor malted. So keeping um, the grain constantly aerated means more turns on the floor to get a more neutral flavor. Um, and it, it's kind of, um, there's other people that'll get upset when I'm telling them I'm trying to make a neutral plain malt. And they're like, no, no, that's not the point. So each to their own, um, it, it just, it depends on what the brewer wants. So there are different uh, aspects to it and a matter of getting everyone uh, what they're after. Well, and to pick up on that a little bit, I think that circles back to one of the earlier things we started talking about before we got out on a Roush beer tangent. Yeah. Uh, and that is one of the things that I enjoy most about working with brewers is the ability to because we are we're small pretty we're a pretty small malt house so um, our original malt house was a one ton batch size we're up to a two ton batch size now um, so that gives us a lot of flexibility to try <clears throat> something new or to try and and push a malt in a different direction if there's a customer that wants something um, different so I like to work very collaboratively with our brewers and match up with people who are excited to say uh like, okay, I, I liked that malt, but what if it was a little bit more this? And that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to eliminate a core product and move something totally in that direction, but I may try and differentiate and create a few different takes on Pilsner and see where they go, you know, or try to make some completely different flavor. I mean, we've, we've had malts that started just by one particular brewer saying, can, can you make a, just a chip malt? Sure, I think we can do that. That sounds like it wouldn't be too complicated. <laughs> um, and now that's one of our regular offerings. So uh, that collaborative process of can you try to push the flavor in this direction? Can you make this? Um, brings a lot of joy to me and keeps malting really fun. Brendan, can you make a chip malt? Actually, that's next on the list. And um, we're, right now we're doing under-modified Pilsner, and we have this wonderful barley that germinates like 100%, and I almost have to, so you, you could rein it in, cut it short. Um, you could kind of be a little brutal to it and steep, and so it's kind of nice to beat up the barley once in a while. So, um, it, yeah, it's uh, it. So all this stuff's doable, and it, it is fun to do, and uh, it's nice to have that... Uh, freedom to go in whatever directions required. So we're similar in size to Hillary there. We started doing very small batches, like 200 batches, the uh, 200 pound batches, a batch a day. And now we expanded out where we're doing uh, four ton batches. So it's um, still, that's uh, four tons sounds like a lot, but it's, it's not in the grand scheme of uh, malting. So flexibility is good. Yeah. I love that idea of creativity though, because so much of what we hear about beer these days is brewers trying to push the envelopes. And then obviously on the hop side of things, there's always um, uh, new varietals that are, that are coming out that uh, the, the growers are trying to uh, get brewers and consumers interested in, but the 
the creativity on on the malt side of things. I mean, maybe it's just these are conversations that are happening in rooms that I'm not in, but I I I, I just find that endlessly fascinating that there's innovation and creativity and 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 trying to create exciting things for beer. Well, I think it's meeting meeting brewers where they're at. So there are some brewers who would like you to just give them the list of the things that you make and some samples and they want to be inspired by what you're already making. And there are some brewers that want to um, ask you to make something different than what you're already making. So it's it's having that complete control of the process and and good understanding of the technicality of malting to be able to try and explore both, you know, both paths. Before Adam hijacked us on a uh, very fun Rauk beer deterrent, um, <laughs> Hillary, you, you, you mentioned weather and obviously there, there's a lot going on with the climate right now and, and a lot of changes. Um, what are you thinking about? And then Brennan, I'll ask you the same question. Um, short-term and long-term when it comes to changes in weather and, and, and patterns and, you know, larger storms and unpredictability. And I mean, sure. you, you know, you just name it. <laughs> you're, you're on that track. So yeah, being the farmer and the, the maltster, we, we get to control our own barley, which is a blessing and a curse. Um, we have yet to hit a year where we, do not have a multiple crop of barley, but I don't know that I'll be able to say that for my whole malting career. Um, I'm just hopeful that that I won't have to lose a crop. Um, the way that we try to protect ourselves against losing crops is by constantly exploring new varieties. Um, so we're always looking to what people in our neighboring states are doing, what the research universities are trialing uh, in our areas and, and thinking about what varieties might be workable in our region so that we can diversify the different varieties of barley that we're using to, to protect our crop investment. Um, and then additionally, you know, on our own farm, we have, uh, we have a lot of infrastructure. So we have the ability to irrigate our crop if we need to. Um, we have our own storage silos, we have our own harvesting equipment. So if we hit a weather window when it is time to harvest or it's time to take some other action uh, with regard to that crop, then we're going to do that immediately because, you know, our barley crop is really important to keeping our malt house fed. Um, so we like the fact that we're totally vertically integrated here um, and, and can be for at least a little while at depending on how large we decide that we want to grow this small house. Yeah, so, yeah, sorry. I guess to jump in there on the, uh, the barley side of things, and um, it, it really becomes key as to what variety you choose. And uh, so back when Hillary and I were first getting uh, started in this, the American varieties the, that were developed in perhaps North Dakota or um, in Canada and widely used throughout uh, states and available weren't necessarily the right varieties for the area. Uh, we've seen a lot of uh, varieties come over from Europe. So working with the uh, French uh, breeder now and uh, 
their climate being closer to us, one of the, the main issues is if it rains near harvest time, that uh, Hillary kind of hit on that a little, you uh, could get your crop maturing and then it gets wet and then it sprouts. So that's a very bad thing. That means that you then have to malt it all immediately. So if you're taking in barley that's going to last you a year, most likely you're not going to be able to malt it all immediately. Um, the uh, European varieties kind of have dormancy built into them, bred into them, and that protects against that. Uh, still, we uh, put in some of the same infrastructure Hillary's talking about there to be able to dry the crop gently but rapidly. If everything should come off a bit moist, because you don't want to let it uh, start to mature and then dry out and then get re-moist. It's better to kind of take it in with a little bit of higher moisture in the grain and dry it, and let it go through that cycle. So it's, it's a matter of being prepared. And um, then again, working with uh, good farmers like Hillary that uh, understand the crop and have, they're not, uh, farming is their day job. They don't have uh, another day job that uh, pulls them from farming and they can only work on the weekends. So. It's finding the right people to partner with, right varieties, and have the right infrastructure in place. And so far, it's uh, looking good, and the future is bright as well. That's good to hear. Um, speaking of the future, and Hillary, I don't want to put you too much on the spot, but I know you're on the board for the Craft Maltsters Guild. Um, what are some of the initiatives, or where do you want some of the focus to be? Um, for small malts in America in the in the near term? Well, I, th I think from a guild perspective, what, you know, our, our main goals of, of the guild are um, around education and promotion of craft malt, right? So I, I look at the education part um, in, in two ways. One is educating maltsters or future maltsters. Um, and so we've done, that's been the main focus of our education since 2012 when that guild started. Um, and that has just been about bringing as many resources as possible to craft malting, um, trying to train maltsters and get um, the resources that we can from commercial malt houses down to the craft level people so that we, we all have access to the same um, topics and quality initiatives. Um, the other education component really speaks to educating brewers and consumers about what craft malt is. Um, because I think that it's it's really not understood um, at all. We've, I know I personally have had, uh, you know, half hour long conversations with a neighbor where I explain what we're doing on the farm and then I see them a few weeks later and they say like, so how are the hops? And <laughs> oh, I'm man. like, oh man, I, either I did a terrible job or you weren't listening at all. Or I don't know, somewhere in the middle. So that consumer education part um, is, is always a challenge. Um, and so to that end, uh, a couple of years ago, we, we did launch the Craft Malt Seal which is a program that brewers can participate in or distillers can participate in. Um, and all you have to do is use, uh, become a, a member of the guild and then use a certain percentage of, of craft malt in your products. 
Um, you can certify your whole brewery or you can certify just a beer. And it just becomes an extra conversation point of like, what does that logo mean? Um, so that people can kind of understand what, what malt is and uh, how it's being used in the brewery. And Sam and Adam, I, it, it strikes me that there's a lot of similarities between, you know, small malt uh, or local malt and local breweries as well, where, you know, there's, there's larger competition um, uh, out there in the world. Do, do you see, I don't know, the, like a stronger relationship, a part, a stronger partnership um, when you're working with, you know, other small companies for the same pursuit of beer? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, I'm as a small local brewery, I'm not calling, you know, the guy who's malting at Wireman to ask him questions about things, but I could email Hillary with, with no problem and, and get an answer about like the malt that's sitting in my, in my brewery right now. Um, yeah, I think that that's, that's a fantastic thing, especially because they're also like on the same, I don't know, say same level as us, but like, you know, small businesses, partnering together is just uh it's just a, like they have the same issues we have the same uh successes too so it's it's it, it's just nice That's what I Abs- it. absolutely agree um in general if you're calling um a larger company you know to order malt or something like that even if you have a question it's going to go through a chain right or somebody's going to have to check with somebody else to find out what's going on if I email or call Brendan, he's just going to tell me it's it's that fast and easy. And it, it does help if you're small like we are. We all have to be pretty nimble. So it's a great relationship. Yeah, that uh, honestly, the local thing is is becoming more and more um, beneficial. I mean, right now, the amount of just carbon footprint overhead of getting malt from from England or from Germany uh, the amount of shipping delays that we've been running into the amount of like from, from everything from like the boats to the, just the local trucking. Um, and the fact that prices have been just going up like literally every week, uh, working with a, a local company that, you know, is only two hours away and being hand delivered, uh, it's, it's a nice, nice feeling too, if it makes any sense. I love it. I, I think there's there's a lot of cool beers coming off of a lot of really cool small farms. So um, thank you all for what you're doing and, and, and how you're pushing things forward. And um, I appreciate the four of you being on the show this month and sharing your insights and, and your passions with us all. Thank you. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. What's exciting you about local malt? And what are your local maltsters making that you want for your beers? Email us and tell us all about it. It's nano at BYO.com. And I'll invite you to head over to BYO.com slash nano podcasts. There you can subscribe to the newsletter, the magazine, and catch up with great pro brewing content. New episodes of this show are released on the 15th of each month. So subscribe now and never miss a show when it's released. And you can also do us a favor by leaving feedback on your podcast platform of choice or by emailing nano at byo.com and checking in with us on all of the BYO social media channels. As always, thanks to this episode's sponsors. 
Hey, Nano Brewers, Fermentus, the obvious choice for beverage fermentation, is now offering dry ale and lager yeasts in flexible 100 gram pouches. Try their Safe Ale WBO6 yeast in the convenient 100 gram pouch, which is the perfect solution for wheat based beers. To learn more about how Fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation and for the latest on their exciting new product releases, visit fermentus.com. This episode is also sponsored by Blickman Pro Brewing. With superior engineering and unrivaled service, Blickman Pro Brewing equipment is the smart choice for your bottom line. You won't find a better match of price, performance, and quality. Hit the ground running with equipment you can count on and support you can trust so you can focus on what matters, ROI. Visit BlickmanPro.com to learn more and get access to hundreds of hours of on-demand videos covering small craft brewery strategies with BYO's new Nano Plus membership. Learn from craft beer experts watching replays of past NanoCon seminars, plus a complete library of in-depth workshops. You'll also have full online access to all of BYO's digital content and an annual print magazine subscription. Check out byo.com slash nano plus to learn more details. I'm John Hall. You can still find me weekly behind the microphone on the Drink Beer, Think Beer podcast, as well as Steal This Beer. You can find those where podcasts are found, and I hope you'll tune in. Our theme music was created by Scott McCampbell, and we thank him for that. And once again, be sure to check out byo.com slash nanopodcast for all of your nano brewing needs. And for now, we wish you all the best for a small but successful brew day.